You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. We had a bit of a funny weekend. It doesn't, not every weekend is like this, but we happen to be involved both on Friday and Saturday on, on helping two different groups of people move from here to there, move house. And it's something that's actually fairly familiar to us, although we haven't had to do it for a little while, but very, very quickly, um, um, it all made sense of what a big task and what an often unsettling task it is. You can often, in those moments between moving from here to there, feel actually quite dislodged. Um, a beautiful thing happened actually yesterday on one of those occasions, helping, helping somebody move. It was a bit of an overwhelming task, and so the call went out uh, far and wide to just Eltham Baptist Church in different places, and the response was amazing. One point in the afternoon, I believe um, many young adults, and I mentioned this in the morning service, and I just want to mention it again and just affirm, affirm you, a number of you are here, but a number of young adults, I believe, had been at a training course in the morning, uh, had it fixed in their mind to head to the beach in the afternoon. It was such a beautiful day yesterday. I can imagine, imagine that was quite a lure. Um, but when they heard about this need, they decided to um, head over there, in, perhaps not instead, but at least to, to give a little bit of your time. And the sense from the people who were moving was that it was like a, a swarm of a little army or a swarm of angels just descended upon the property to help out at a really critical time when morale was a little bit low and the task felt overwhelming. And so your presence there, just that, that gift of... Uh, service and helps was really, really appreciated. And why don't we, why don't we give them a round of applause? I know who you were. Um, hearing a little bit about the story and how much uh, that blessed the people who were moving was, was very, very touching. So thank you. Thank you for that. It's a, it's a funny thing being dislodged. That is, that necessity. You know you're here, but you have to be there. And it's just a very, very uncomfortable uh, sort of journey that is going to get you there. And yet it's inevitable. If you want to get from one place to another, from A to B, then a certain amount of um, discomfort is going to be inevitable. And the interesting thing is about Christianity and this journey of following God is that God is really into dislodging us. And I know that sounds uh, a little bit unexpected at times. Isn't, isn't he a loving heavenly father? Doesn't he care for us? Isn't he the comforter and the one who cares for us and the one who will leave us alone? No, no, he's not. Not at all. No, he loves to dislodge you. It seems to be all part of what it means to, to follow Jesus. In fact, the very following of Jesus implies, doesn't it, that there is going to be a journey and there are going to be stages and perhaps many in which you are going to have that uncomfortable feeling of being dislodged. You are trying to get from here to there and it's just not easy and yet God loves to do it. Sometimes it's on a personal level. Sometimes it's, I would like to be this kind of a person. I want to move from here to here. But in order to make you that sort of a person, it's going to be a little bit of an uncomfortable journey. Sometimes it's on a corporate basis. In fact, we as a church face this uh, challenge right now. We're, we're, in a, we're in a building which, if you were here this morning, you would realize is inadequate for our, uh, for our ministry. It's um, just not big enough. And so we have this 
this sense of unease of being here, but we really need to be here. We need to do something about the facilities in in which we meet. So sometimes on a personal level, sometimes on a corporate level, God is going to move us from here to there, and we are going to be dislodged. And it's all part of what it means to be on a, on a journey with God. It's necessary, as it seems, in order to lay hold of the, the promises that God makes to us. And I guess if there is an upside to this dislodging and the discomfort that comes with that, it is, it is this, that where it is that God is going to take us will always be a, be a place of promise, a place where His promises are fulfilled in, in your life and, and mine, where He is going to do something in your life that is going to be better. Perhaps there is no better illustration of this journeying with God and and what it takes to get from here to there than to have a look at the the journey that the people of Israel took under especially the leadership of Joshua in order to lay hold of God's promises, to enter into the promised land, a land of of promise. They had been told that it was a, a land flowing with with milk and honey. Sounds a little bit like a banana smoothie, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit sticky, but hey, these are good things. They were told that, that the, there are bumper crops and it's the place you want to be. But to get there is going to be something of a, of a challenge. The story of Israel's journey to the promised land is, is actually part two, as they cross the Jordan, part two of this huge epic story. It starts, as you know, with the exodus from, from Egypt. That's part one. And because of a number of, number of things that are going on, it requires a, a little bit of a 40-year wandering through the desert in which some important lessons are going to have to be learnt. And so, really, the crossing of the Jordan is the completion of the exodus and, and the fulfilment of, of God um, raising up a nation of people who belong to him. Moses is handing on the baton of leadership. He is handing over to Joshua. And Joshua, the young leader, has this this wealth of teaching and input that Moses has given the people of Israel over this time. And yet it's a new generation and he must lead them. And so it's quite challenging as, as he seeks to take hold of the promises of God and lead the people into the promised land. But there are a number of similarities between uh, what we read in Scripture throughout the book of Joshua and the Christian walk, whether it be personal, whether it be corporate. Firstly, we understand that the nation Israel is no ordinary nation. They are a people who are chosen by God. And it's helpful to remember when you get that sense of being on a journey, when when you realize God is dislodging me, God is moving me from here to there. And when the journey gets uncomfortable, it's helpful to remember that, well, you are on this journey because you have been chosen by God. This is no accident. This is kind of not a a conference or a a course that you signed up for. Yeah, I'm in. I I, I think I really like the sound of this and, and what they're on about. The truth is, you may have made a decision for God, but but long before that, God chose you to be his very own, to be his precious possession. And part of being chosen, in fact, includes that. 
Israel is constantly called God's precious possession, his chosen possession, his people. They belong to him. The same in the New Testament, Romans 1.6. You have been called to belong to God, to Christ Jesus. You've been chosen for that special purpose. That is a calling on your life. If you're ever wondering and searching for meaning and wondering, well, what is my life all, all about? Does anyone actually know I'm here? Am I of some value or worth to this world? Is there some way in which I can input? Does, hello, does anyone know I exist? The answer is yes. God does. An emphatic yes. God sees you. He knows you. And he has chosen you. Whether you feel that or not at times doesn't hide the fact it's true. You're chosen by God for a very, very special purpose, one that you will uniquely fit exactly who you are and how God has, God has made and created you. You are God's special possession, His chosen people. And Israel always understood that they weren't just chosen so that they could live the high life. No. They were chosen in order to actually reflect the character of God. Indeed, as God revealed himself to Israel, Israel were to be a, a living revelation of who God is and his character. They were to be a light to the nations, a little bit like a, like a nation, like a lighthouse, shining the light and the glory of God to the surrounding nations. That's what you have been chosen for as well. It's all part of the journey. The second thing to note is that that the journey had to be made. It wasn't an option. Israel really didn't have many options. They could have stayed in Egypt, sure, but that was a, a place of slavery, a place of bondage. Essentially, they, they weren't free at all. The invitation was to, to come with God on a journey from here to there, but to come with God on a journey that would lead them into freedom, the, the freedom that he had intended for them. Same with you. Whoever you are, you are meant to enjoy that same freedom, absolute freedom, to be everything that you have been called by God to be. Jesus Christ is in the business of loosening chains, and he doesn't want you to be a slave. He doesn't want you to be bound by, by fear and, and the things of this world. He has designed you for freedom, and, and being on that journey is an invitation to be free. And then lastly, looking at the picture or the story of Israel and the journey that they are making, it's a reminder that at times the journey can be actually rather perilous. Sometimes it's, it's not, an, not an easy journey to take. It can be one in which the desert experience can become a very common experience. And it's not a comfortable one. It's not a nice one. The idea is to not become comfortable with those desert experiences, not to become stuck in a rut, not to become static, but, but to understand that journeying with God is supposed to be a, a dynamic relationship. Again, one in which he is getting you from here to there. He is growing you in one way or another. As we think corporately about what God has in store for us, as we think about the fact that God wants to take us from this to this, we can embrace the fact that whatever it is that God has for us, it's going to be a better and brighter future. Absolutely. Yes, the journey will be uncomfortable, 
but we're not supposed to be comfortable. That's the whole idea. We're not supposed to get stuck in a rut. We're not supposed to, to start to enjoy the desert experience. The truth is that God has a wonderful future for all of us together as a church community to explore. And indeed, as we look at building a building, the truth is that God is looking to build us as a faith community. That's his ultimate aim here. It'll never, ever, ever be simply about a building. It is always about what God is building into us. But it can be a perilous journey at times, and we're constantly reminded of the need to, to remain close to God. And as we, as we think about and as we look at this picture of Israel on a journey, the Exodus, part one, across the Red Sea, part two, across the Jordan and entering into the Promised Land. As we, as we think about this and as we think about the imagery and its, its relationship to us personally and corporately, we're going to find ourselves from time to time asking a number of questions, not the least of which is, <laughs> why, God, does it take so long? Why don't the answers come quicker? Why can't we shorten the distance from here to there? Why... Why are there no shortcuts? Why are there no highways? Why are there no bridges? Why do we have to traverse these deep valleys at times and cross this mountainous country? Why? What is that about? Can't it be shorter? And the truth is that it's difficult to always understand the ways of God. And it can be kind of confronting, but... But God sometimes chooses the journey to prepare us for the promises that he has in store for us. Along the journey, he is strengthening us in different ways. It was really in the 40 years of wilderness that Israel started to become a nation, a nation worthy of possessing the land. We're learning to become the sort of people who can lay hold of the, the promises of God. There are important lessons to learn along the way. Indeed, our very, our very view of the world has to change as our view of God changes. Sometimes in anthropology, we call it a worldview, the way that we see the whole world. In secular thought, our view of religion and God would be shaped by our view of the world. Our worldview shapes our God view. But in truth, theologically speaking, we think it's the opposite. It's actually our view of God, or otherwise actually shapes our view of the world. Our God view shapes our worldview. And the invitation to journey with God is an invitation to discover more about God. It's an invitation to understand the great I am in further depth, to increase and expand our view of God so that our, our worldview is also adjusted accordingly. Our God view shapes our worldview and along the, the journey, we will be, be learning the sorts of lessons in which that becomes evident. This week, we're not actually going to get into the book of Joshua. It's going to do a little bit of an introduction. We're actually going to look at the, the parting words of Moses. But as we do so, I think you will find a number of, of things to encourage you along the way. There are also going to be some questions, and they'll be tough ones as we get into the book of Joshua. We'll be wrestling with issues such as, 
Did God, loving Heavenly Father, really say that women and children have to be killed? That's a tough one. Did he not only say that, which is surprising to say the least, but going a step further and a little bit even more problematic, did he actually instruct the nation Israel to be the tool through which that would take place? Wow. There's some big questions. A lot of people get a little bit stumped on these questions. Are there two gods in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? And, and how do we understand if, if, if it's the one God and he's immutable, meaning he doesn't change, God hasn't evolved and become loving somehow in the New Testament, how do we understand that? We'll be looking at that. Just not tonight. <laughs> Let's start tonight by looking at at a little bit of an encouragement from Moses. It's a pretty, pretty epic leader. He's a legend, is Moses. And he's just handed the baton over to Joshua. But we have three things in which we can understand a little bit of what was going on in the heart of Moses towards the end of his life. We have what is called the Song of Moses. We have the Prayer of Moses, and we have the Blessing of Moses. The Blessing of Moses is an extended portion towards the end of Deuteronomy, in which he not only blesses each of the tribes, but he's got a generic blessing for all of Israel, for all generations. And in the Song of Moses, the Prayer of Moses, and the Blessings of Moses, we get to understand a little bit of what was going on in the heart and the mind of this great leader, a leader who was, was faithful to God to his, to his dying day. But as he is called home, it's touched with a bit of sadness because he is led up onto a mountain in which he is going to be called home. He's going to pass from this earthly life. But up on that mountain, he gets to see the promised land, this land of promise that this new generation of Israel are going to go in and possess and experience and encounter. And the land is kind of like uh, synonymous for the presence of God. They are going to experience something of God that even Moses has never experienced. And he never will. He only gets to see it from afar. But even then, under a little bit of judgment from God, he doesn't lose faith. There's an incredible tenderness as he leaves Israel with a parting song, prayer, and, and blessing. And tonight I just want to really talk a little bit about Moses' song. It's an interesting song. It's not one you hear very often. We don't write songs like this nowadays, and you'll see why in a moment. It's a prophetic song declaring the goodness of God and predicting the rebellion of Israel. And then he, God's response is explained, ultimately, and his, his name, God's name, is vindicated. And the prayer goes, I'll, I'll read you a couple of, couple of bits in just a moment, but the prayer goes something like this. It starts out with, um, um, listen to this song, it's a really good song. This is my summary, okay? It's not literal, that's... 
not even attempt at paraphrasing. But Moses starts out by, listen to my song, it's a really good song. Chorus. God is unquestionably good. You are really bad, Israel. You're rebellious. You've got a stubborn heart. Eventually, actually, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to rebel against God. You're going to arouse his anger to the point in which you are nearly actually obliterated. But God will see that. He'll save you. Back to the chorus. And his name will be vindicated and he will prove that he is unquestionably good. Do you like the song? Isn't that a lovely song? Why, why isn't it that some, some church band hasn't come up with a tune to that? Let's go through it again. Let's we can sing it together. But, but basically, it is, um, listen, this is really good what I've got to tell you. God is unquestionably good. You are really bad, evil, so evil, in fact. God's almost going to wipe you out. But just before he does, ha, he'll come through, save you from your enemies, and you will realize God's name vindicated. God is good. Back to the chorus. How do you like that? Let's have a look at it. Let's have a look at just the opening, opening verses. Firstly, this is the bit where I've got something really nice to tell you. It's the introduction to the song. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear you, earth, the words of my mouth. Now, here is the, the tender heart of a shepherd. Listen to, this is what makes Moses such a great leader. Let my teaching fall like rain. Let my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. That's the introduction. Listen up. Listen to this song. And this song, by the way, was meant to be learnt and recited over and over and over again. And you might wonder, what's kind of a funny song, isn't it, to teach your kids? You know, it's not like a Vinci Tales one, is it? Or a Colin Buchanan or something you all sing along with smiles in the car. What's going on here? What an odd song. It's almost like a lament, isn't it? What's going on? Could it be? Here is this prediction. God is unquestionably good. Here is this prediction of Israel's rebellion and ultimate demise, but then God's salvation once more, back to the chorus. Could it be a touch of grace here that Israel was taught this song in order to delay for as many generations as possible that rebellion? Eventually, one generation, I don't know, was it this one or this one or this one or this one? This, one of these generations would forget to pass on the song. They would forget to sing the song. And when they did, the downfall of the nation is an inevitability. But remembering the song, at least for a few generations was going to save Israel and, and create an opportunity by which they could grow as a nation and bring glory to God, at least for a time. And perhaps that's the point of the song. It's, it's odd otherwise, isn't it? But at least for a few generations they would get it, and they would remind themselves, don't rebel, don't do that, don't turn your back on God, don't, don't be that generation, don't do that. Sing the song. Sing the song. And what would they sing? Here's the chorus. Wow, what I'm calling the chorus. 
I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Wow. God is unquestionably good. Whatever your journey entails, the ups, the downs, we need to go back to the chorus. You might have a whole lot of questions. Indeed, I'd be surprised if you didn't. But there is no promise in this lifetime that you're going to get answers to all of your questions. That in itself is a question without an answer. Life, personally, and sometimes corporately, is difficult. But when it is, in those moments where we are asking, God, what are you doing? How can this be? I don't understand. So much we don't understand. How could you do this? How could you allow this? How could this work out this way? How, 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 why, why, why? I don't have answers. What are you doing, God? In those moments, we sing the song. We go back to the chorus. And we say, I don't understand the ways of God, but I trust in the character of God. I know who he is. Scripture declares the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. That means without fault, without any imperfection at all. All his ways are just, unquestionably so. He's a faithful God. It's who he is. He does no wrong. Upright and just is he. That's the chorus. And life has a funny way. These journeys getting from here to there. Life has a funny way of presenting, at times, big questions. Why God? Why God? Why God? Honestly, we don't always have the answers. We will one day. God does. We just don't. What do you do? You sing the song. You go back to the chorus. You say, I do not understand what is going on right now. I do not understand what is happening in my life. I do not understand why the journey is so uncomfortable. I do not understand why it's difficult to get from here to there. I do not understand why God has dislodged me. I just do not understand. But I'm going to sing the chorus. Praise God. Praise God. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of my God. He is the rock and his works are perfect and all his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. It may start out as a discipline, but I promise you, the more you do it, 
the more it will spontaneously spring from the heart like a spring of joy. Some years ago, 2001 actually, we were as a family, and I've, I've told this story before, but it was a number of years ago, we were serving with Operation Mobilization. We were on their, their ship, the MV Dulos, and, and uh, we were actually stuck in the South China Sea in a typhoon. Now, South China Sea, very, very deep at that time. In fact, I took the boys out on, on deck. I think it was that very same trip. We spent a fair bit of time in that channel, and, and we all took a coin. And, uh, and I said, boys, you are now going to do something that probably nobody else your age will ever do. You are going to throw that coin further than most other children your age. Drop it over the side. And so we threw our coin over the side of the ship and, and that thing went down a kilometer. That's how deep the waters were where, where we were uh, traveling at that particular time. But a typhoon sprang up. We're in good, we're in good hands. The captain of the ship, who was affectionately known as PJ, very, very experienced Singaporean captain, and um, always felt that we were in good hands on that voyage. But no matter what decision the, the deck crew made about avoiding the storm, exactly as we changed course, so did the storm. It was, it was uncanny. We would go this way, the storm would track with us. We'd go this way, we'd, tr we'd try to go backwards. Everywhere we changed course, it was like the storm was just chasing us. And eventually, our paths collided. We were in the middle of a, of a typhoon, and a pretty big one of that. Now, that in and of itself wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest issue was the fact that at the same time, our, our engine blew a piston. It was a Fiat engine. I was always amused by that. In the, actually, Blair used to work on it, didn't you, down in the engine room? Um, and, they, and they had Fiat written, written up on the, uh, on the wall there. And uh, it was a very, very big engine. But a piston blew. The chief engineer, uh, David Gillen, a very, very experienced um, engineer at the time, normally this would be a two, three-day project. And, uh, and they had to quickly go about the repairs. But what happened is once we lost propulsion, we lost steering. And so very, very quickly, these massive waves turned the ship on sideways, and, and we were in a very precarious position for some time, rocking back and forth. Most of the crew... And most of us as passengers on the ship, we'd forgotten what it meant to be in a storm. It had been a number of years since we'd been in, in a storm that big. Everything was, was going wrong. I remember in the dining room on one occasion, you know, as a family, we were sitting there chasing our meals across the table this way and that. And as we were there, this huge big um, drink uh, machine you know, fell over and spilled liters of orange juice all over the, all over the floor. It's, oh, it's just mess everywhere you looked. My office, I opened the door only to find the computer on the floor. I didn't recognize it immediately because then all of my books had fallen on top of it. Um, our cabin, the fridge door, a little portable, portable fridge had opened, opened the door and then spilled all of the contents onto the floor and just to add insult to injury and then ceremoniously dumped the fridge on top of the lot of it. Um, and I remember this scream from the bathroom on one occasion, but I couldn't attend to the bathroom because I was trying to hold a bureau, a, a, a desk in our cabin from falling over and, and spilling its contents, including our laptop and everything. So I was holding that with one hand, 
trying to tie a rope around it, so Bron had to go and attend to the scream in the bathroom, which, by the way, was really just a toilet and a shower, but the bath was a tub in which four-year-old Joel used to, used to have his bath, and, and unfortunately, he wasn't liking the way the, the bathtub was slipping over the shower, the shower floor. It was like a ship within a ship that was sort of sailing back and forth, and, and so he, he felt a little bit out at sea as well. Um, and so he decided to do something about it. He, he drew a map for Captain PJ, all of four years of age. He decided that this wasn't the way to go. There must be some other way to go. There must be better sailing than this. So he, um, he got out his coloured pencils, a very, very colourful map. He got out his coloured pencils and his crayons and so forth, and he drew this very, very intricate map for, for PJ. It had lots of, lots of streams of water. Many of them looked actually like water slides. Indeed, I do believe there was the odd water slide in the South China Sea there. Um, in Joel's mind, and, and he had mapped out a path for Captain PJ so that he would be able to, to get us out of trouble. And he wanted to present it to the captain, and so we saw him at, at dinner one evening and, uh, and with much pomp and ceremony presented this, this map for PJ so that he would be able to safely sail us, us out of uh, the dangerous waters. Well, we did eventually fix the engine in record time. It was quite a miracle, I believe, from memory, it was within like 24 hours they did a job that almost took three days and, and we were able to actually get out, of, get out of that situation. But thinking back to Joel's response, he couldn't have articulated it this way, but essentially in presenting the map to, to PJ, it wasn't a vote of no confidence in PJ as captain. He wasn't about to start a mutiny and saying, follow me, the four-year-old, I'll get you out of trouble. He was essentially saying, you know, Here's my map. I was wondering if there might be a better way. Is there another way out of this that we could take? But either way, I know you're the captain, and I trust you to get us through. Joel wasn't asking for him to hand in his cap and his, and his epaulets. He still trusted that Captain PJ would be the captain. Here's the guy. He will get us through this. It's just that I was wondering if there's another way which might involve water slides and so forth. <laughs> That's cute. But I wonder whether, in the economy of God and journeying with God, as God gets us from here to there, and as, as that sometimes means being dislodged and encountering much discomfort along the way, I think we're allowed at times to ask the question, God, I don't understand your ways. I don't understand what's happening here. Is there another way? But regardless, you're God, I'm not. And I tr trust you. You are unquestionably good and your character is impeccable and I trust you. We go back to the chorus. We sing the chorus and we say, nonetheless, whether I like it or not, whether I have the answers I want or not, whether I understand or whether I don't understand. And I just have to live with the confusion. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he.
You know, we live in some interesting times, don't we? Probably, seems to me sometimes that you guys, your generation, has it a little bit tough. I guess every generation studies and questions the merits of technology. Television, is it a good or a bad thing? Internet, is it a good or a bad thing? Social media, is it a good or a bad thing? That somebody can have a thought and have it posted within a 50th of a second. Good or bad? Sometimes, you'll find yourself hearing things and wondering whether God hasn't been put into a dock. Like a villain on trial. Whether God isn't being accused of this or that. Whether this allegation or that allegation about the goodness, the righteousness, or the faithfulness of God isn't somewhat in question. Which generation will we be? Will we be the generation that remember to sing the song? Or will we be one of those generations that is going to forget to sing the song? Where we start to accept the rumors. We start to accept the allegations. We start to accept what, what others are saying about God. And go say, you know what? I just don't think he can be trusted. I'd say by definition, you ain't got yourself a capital G God, you got yourself one of those little little G gods and <laughs> you get one of them, trade them in. They're no good. But are we gonna be the generation that remembers, gotta sing the song? Gotta remember the chorus. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why God might have allowed this or that or the other. All I know. Really, is the chorus. And I'm going to go back to that every time. I choose to believe. I'm going to trust him on this. That in the end, one day, he will vindicate his name. And he will prove what I believed all along the chorus. He's good. He's unquestionably good. He really is. Now, the interesting thing is, Moses is at the end of his life when he shares this insight. He's been through a lot, and he comes to the end of his life, and he teaches the song, and his little insight, his parting gift, if you like, to Joshua and Israel is the chorus. You know what? <laughs> Whatever else happens, let me tell you something I've learned. It's taken me a while to learn it, but let me tell you something I've learned. God is unquestionably good, and you need to sing the chorus. And his gift to Israel was that insight that he had at the end of his life, 
he gave to Israel at the start of their journey. It's a wonderful gift. And as we follow the journey of Joshua and Israel, the nation, into the promised land, as we grapple with the ways of God, we will have to as well come back to that chorus. Praise God and and sing the song of His unquestionable goodness. And that just may be a parallel for a journey that you're on at the moment, or that one day you will be on. But the lesson for us tonight is to be a people who have decided, whatever comes my way, I will sing the chorus. I will sing the praises of God. He is unquestionably good. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.